If you would, turn in the Word of God to Acts chapter 21. We continue our sermon series through the book of Acts that we are calling Jesus Acts. He continues to work in the life of the church. Uh, we saw beginning in Jerusalem this message, Jesus is back from the dead. He's Lord over all. You can have your sins forgiven by joining forces with Him, believing in Him, trusting Him, and following Him. And now it is scattered all the way to the ends of the earth. Uh, as we're moving into Acts chapter 21, uh, we will see the end of the story. Uh, Acts chapter 21. I'm going to read verses uh, 10 through 14 to begin our time. But before we do that, you can always tell uh, what kind of job you are doing as a leader uh, when you're not around. How do things go? And uh, we have experienced, uh, even this morning, what a great job Clay Tabor is doing, leading the music and worship of our church. He is thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away, and you wouldn't even know it. And uh, we are so thankful for his leadership. Thank you to the band today for stepping in and doing a fantastic job leading us in worship. I scheduled a meeting on Sunday morning, and I never do that. And I forgot, you know, Clay's not here. How's that going to work? And I came out late running around. Is everything okay? Everything okay? And everybody's got it. Everything's good. And so uh, that is good leadership on Clay's part. And so uh, be thankful for him and continue to pray for him and his family as he is away this week in East Asia, uh, as we've already talked about. Acts chapter, 10, Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 10. Stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word. These are words given to us in these moments by the whole... I was making sure that wasn't a fan, sorry. Uh, it wasn't a fan, everybody's okay back there. Uh, by the Holy Spirit of God for this moment. This isn't... We're not looking into something that happened long ago to be fascinated by it. We are looking into God's Word to see what it means for us today in these moments. We're talking about planting churches in New Orleans, Peru, East Asia. This has everything to do with what we're doing today. And this is God's Word to us. Hear from Christ, beginning in verse 10. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but to even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Oh God, I pray that the will of the Lord would be done in our lives all across this room. God, the world, the flesh, the devil, friends, family, they so often plead with us to be happy, to be safe, to be comfortable. And may we with Paul say, what are you weeping? What are you doing, 
causing me to weep. What are you doing breaking my heart? May we not be persuaded by anything else but the will of the Lord. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. If you haven't heard in the last two weeks, Jesse Duplantis needs a new private jet. He's asking for a $54 million jet plane, a Falcon 7X. Now, this would be the fourth plane that he's owned over the course of his ministry, that his ministry has owned. And this plane will go further than any other jet plane that he has had, any other private plane. It will save money on gas. He will most of the time only have to make one stop to get all over the world. And to add, this jet has fighter jet technology with elegant, elegant whisper quiet executive cabins. Now, Duplantis is the latest health wealth charlatan that is asking for a private jet plane from his followers. Creflo Dollar did it just, uh, I think it was a, a couple years ago, and even a few months ago asked again. And if you're uncomfortable with us with saying the health wealth gospel is heresy, blasphemy, then you're in the wrong place today. We believe that it is a false gospel and it is anti-Christ. But Jesse Duplantis is one of these charlatans who's asking his followers to provide for him a $54 million jet plane. And he said, the Lord spoke to him and said, Jesse, do you want to come up where I'm at? And Jesse said, yes, Lord. He said, then I want, to be I want you to believe me for a Falcon 7X paid in cash. How am I going to pay for that? Jesse asked the Lord. You're not going to pay for it. It's easy to believe for something you're not going to pay for. I want you to believe me for it. And I guess he's believing his followers will donate for it. What a despicable... I'm going to try to contain my comments in this moment. But what a horrific thought. There's even a, on uh, the internet this week, I saw a video of Jesse Duplantis and Kenneth Copeland talking about private jets and the importance of private jets for their ministry. And Kenneth Copeland said, we can't do what we've got to do in public. We can't travel in public. He's saying this. There's a video of it. We can't do this. People always coming to up to us asking for prayer. Imagine being in an airport and all these demons coming up to you through the prayer request of all of these people. And then you want us to get in a tube with a bunch of demons in this dope-filled world. We have to have private jets to get done what we need to do. Well, the Apostle Paul didn't need a private jet. And as a matter of fact, Duplantis said, if Jesus was alive on the earth, physically on the earth today, he wouldn't be riding a donkey. Well, there were chariots during the time Jesus was alive, and if he thought like Duplantis, he would have probably rode around in a chariot. But he didn't. He rode a donkey into Jerusalem. And we see the glory of God in that. And we see the glory of God in the Apostle Paul's travel plans. As we get to... Acts chapter 21, something that should just stun us, as we talked about before, is the grit 
and perseverance of the Apostle Paul. Before Paul ends his ministry, he will have traveled 15,500 miles. He will have sailed 6,800 of those miles. And get this, he will have walked 8,700 of those miles. Wow, that's amazing. No luxury liner for the Apostle Paul. Walking, sailing on cargo ships. He would have spent 663 days in the last 25 years as we get to uh, Acts chapter 28. In 25 years, he will spend 663 of those days on the road, traveling, traveling. And by the way, he wrote most of the New Testament during that time. And when we come to Acts chapter 21, he has with himself, he is on his final missionary journey. He is sailing back to Jerusalem with an offering from the Gentile churches. And his plan is to deliver that personally and then go to Rome for the sake of the gospel. And his prayers we read in Romans is that he would one day get to Spain where Jesus has yet to be preached. That is his mission. That is his goal. And in Acts chapter 21, right where we, when we get here, he has already covered an area of 25 million people. When you look at the map, there are six different regions he has already covered in 14 years, made up of 25 million people. And when he writes to the Romans, he says, I have no more work in this region. He shared the gospel, he's planted churches. He's discipled to the point, he says, it's time to move on from 25 million people. And he's just 50 years old. I did say just 50 years old, and he's accomplished all of this. I was thinking this week, I got nine more years to get there. I got a lot to do to catch up to the Apostle Paul. And yet, we find this rugged, gritty man walking the back roads of the ancient world, preaching the gospel. He's made 75 different stops, staying in places months and years up until this point. This is a man who's getting after it for Jesus. And if anyone deserved to finish in luxury, if anyone deserved to ride into Jerusalem on a tricked-out chariot up to the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem and then just have a massive retirement party and sell off to the GNC and coast the rest of his life, it is this man. He's done enough where we would look back and say, Paul, you did it all. What else could you do? And yet he is intent on going to Jerusalem where he knows he will be arrested, where he knows that he will be imprisoned, where he knows he will be sent off to Rome. He is still intent on finishing not as a celebrity, but as a prisoner. When we get to verse 4, we find him in Tyre. And this is where the ship he is on at this point is unloading cargo. So can you imagine, Paul, sitting around probably with animals, probably with pirates of the first century, probably sitting around waiting for the cargo to unload. And what are we going to do? Let's go visit some Christians. Notice verse 4. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days waiting for this ship to unload cargo so he can get on to Jerusalem. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul, 
not to go to Jerusalem again and again as he gets closer to Jerusalem. This warning only intensifies, stop Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship and they returned home. Luke here is describing this intimate picture that Paul has once again with Christians here in Tyre. And last week we saw in Miletus the same sort of scene where Paul is moving to Jerusalem. He's finishing his ministry and Christians realize we will never see this man of God again. We will never see this missionary again. To many, he has been their pastor. We will never see him again. And what is their response? They are weeping. There is affection. There is this genuine bond and mission and fellowship that goes on here. And again, there is this, uh, again, this intense warning, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And notice the way Luke describes it. He says, through the Spirit... So these aren't some weirdos, demons, as Kenneth Copeland would call them, coming up out of nowhere. These are Christians who love Paul. And Luke says, through the Spirit, God is telling them what is going to happen to Paul, and they are warning him, you're going to be arrested in Jerusalem. Don't go, Paul. Don't move into Jerusalem. And why does Luke keep telling us this same story over and over of the warnings that are before Paul? It's because Luke sees something in Paul he's seen before. Luke sees something in Paul he knows of in the person of Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of Luke... Before Jesus heads to Jerusalem, before his last days in Jerusalem, Luke says he set his face toward Jerusalem. Jesus, Jesus himself, knowing what was going to happen to him in the city of Jerusalem, Luke said, set his face to Jerusalem. And here he sees the same thing with Paul. Paul knows he's going to be arrested. He knows he's going to suffer, but he's doing it for Jesus. And just like Jesus, Luke says, he set his face to Jerusalem and he would not be budged. His face was like flint toward Jerusalem. And notice verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we, were, we arrived at Paul Thomas. And we, greet, we, were greeted by, we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And notice this, we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven. And we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now notice one thing here. As Paul gets closer to Jerusalem, we see the appearance of more. He says brothers here. There is continual fellowship. We said earlier he's made 75 stops planting churches, revisiting churches. And he's acquiring more and more loyal followers to the very end. But notice where they stay. The house of Philip. 
Philip was the first cross-cultural missionary. He leaves Jerusalem. He goes into an area of Samaria. The gospel uh, comes alive. People are believing in Jesus. There's signs and there's wonders there. Philip is the one who shared the gospel with the finance minister from Ethiopia and sent the gospel to Africa. That's where they're staying. And notice Philip has four daughters who aren't married and they have the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy was given to the church before the scripture was finished. So the church would know the will of God. And so you have prophets who who arise in the church and they're able to tell the church the will of God. And so here in Philip's home, he has four daughters. They're not married and they have a word from the Lord. What a house that would be. Then Philip here reminds us The appearance of Philip here reminds us of where the witness has gone. As Paul is moving back to Jerusalem, there's almost a review. Let's review where the gospel has gone. And let's be reminded in Philip this swinging door event into Samaria, into cross-cultural ministry. Remember Philip, but also remember what, what sent Philip to Samaria. If we go back to the first of Acts, how did he get there? The church was being persecuted. And we read in Acts, the church was scattered to Samaria, scattered throughout Judea because of persecution. And so what Luke is reminding us of here in Paul is he has set his face to Jerusalem and he's going to suffer. And yet he is marching right back through areas where persecution and suffering has sent the church out. And by the way, in Jerusalem now, there's a thriving church. Persecution didn't stamp out the church. By the way, in Judea, there's a thriving church. Philip is there. Philip's family is in the Lord. They are growing in the Lord. They are declaring the word of the Lord here in Caesarea. Persecution hasn't stomped out the church. Notice verse 10. Luke is again recounting, he says, while we were staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus. Agabus is mentioned earlier in Acts. He warns of a famine in Jerusalem. There's an offering taken back because of his ministry. He's from Judea. And then verse 11, in coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands and thus said, that says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now they're having a dinner party at Philip's house. And the word's out, Paul's back in town. Bring Agabus. He's got to meet Agabus. You know Agabus, this great prophet, He's really good with object lessons. He really knows how to drive the point home. He's a great teacher, life of the party. He shows up and he sees Paul and he says, give me your belt. And he begins binding his hands, binding his feet. And and this is what you want at your dinner party, right? To be bound in front of everybody, a party honoring you. He says, this is going to happen to this man in Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen to him. And he says this by the Spirit of God. Notice the Spirit of God is empowering him to say this. So this isn't a good guess. If I met Paul during this time, I would be able to say to Paul, it's a good guess you'll probably be arrested in Jerusalem. Why? You get arrested everywhere you go. 
But he says this by the power of the Spirit. What is he saying? This is the will of God for you, Paul. Most prophets and people today who say they have the gift of prophecy, it's really generic. I've got a word from the, of the Lord for you, and it's always really generic, and it's always good. The Lord bless you, and the Lord keep you. I've got a word for the Lord for you, Jeremy. You're on the edge of some great stuff. It's really generic. Just believe God. But Agabus says, I got a word from the Lord for you. It ain't going to end well for you, Paul. Oh, how encouraging. This is great. But it's by the Holy Spirit of the Lord. But we have seen this same prophetic word before. And again, we go back to Jesus as he is making his way to Jerusalem. Luke has already said he set his face like flint and he would not be denied. Now he's seeing that in Jesus. What did Jesus tell his disciples in Matthew chapter 16 as he is making his way to Jerusalem? He says, guys, I've got to tell you something. We're headed to Jerusalem. This is the way it's going to end for us. I'm going to be delivered over to the religious leaders there. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to be raised on the third day. We've seen this sort of prophecy before. And here, Luke is doing the same thing that Matthew did in Matthew 16. Yes, we're going to Jerusalem. This is a word from the Lord. It's not going to end well for Jesus. It's not going to end well for Paul. And why is Luke bringing this up? Because we know Jesus is back from the dead. Jesus went to Jerusalem, suffered, died, and is alive. So when Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I don't care if I'm going to suffer. I'm ready to be imprisoned for Jesus. We know he won't lose. We know he cannot lose. This witness of the gospel here is alive in the life of the Apostle Paul. The power of the Spirit that reminds us what we are a part of, reminds us that what we're connected to is unstoppable. And here Paul is living that out. He's living it out. I can't be stopped. Jesus wasn't stopped in Jerusalem. I won't be stopped in Jerusalem. And by the way, I have a word of the Lord for for you today. A prophetic word from the Holy Scriptures. The Apostle Paul says to you, if you desire to live a godly life, you will suffer persecution. I have a word from the Lord for you today. From the lips of Jesus. If they hated me, they will hate you. That's a prophetic word from the word of the Lord. Inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. It's true. If you live out the gospel, you will be opposed. But what do we see in Paul here? You may be opposed, but you won't be defeated. You can't lose. Jesus didn't lose. And that's the whole point of the book of Acts. We go back to Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit of God. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And we've seen that it is true. This witness cannot be stopped. What is the power of the witness? You can stare opposition down and know you won't lose. You've already been crucified. You've already been raised from the dead. You've already hung on a cross in Jerusalem. You've already gotten out of a tomb outside of the city. You can't lose. And the point of the book of Acts is we live out that power with courage. 
The point of the book of Acts is you, like Paul, going to Jerusalem, you can stare death down and you can say, Jesus has already been there and He's doing fine. I can even stare death down and trust Him and preach the gospel. And some of you need to believe that's true. And you need to turn this abstract power and witness into conversations this week. You need to look friends in the eyes and plead with them to believe in Jesus. You know how you do it? The power of the Spirit that the risen Christ has given to you, knowing you can say those words and not be scared of any... The worst has already happened to you. You've already been crucified and you've already been dead and now you're raised in Jesus. What's the worst that can happen to you? Share the gospel with somebody. Not because your church needs you to do it and, and, and it's a part of a new program, a strategy. You need to do it this week. You need to prove to yourself the gospel is true just by sharing it with someone and knowing you won't die doing it. Yes, this is good. This is great. I can't lose. And if you are persecuted, opposed, rejected, so what? Jesus is Lord. He can't lose. Some of you need to plan mission trips to hard places. I was thinking this week, we have seven church members in East Asia right now where it's illegal to plant churches. That's great. That's great. And if you think we're stopping there, you're crazy. It's great. Some of us need to prove that it's okay to do things like that because Jesus is Lord. That's the witness of the gospel in the church. We do crazy things for Jesus because the gospel's true. We do things for Jesus in that way. And folks turn around and say, why? Notice verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people, we urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Now again, it's overwhelming. Paul, don't do this. Paul, don't do this. And here in verse 12, Luke says, I was a part of it. I was a part of telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But looking back, wow. Oh, that was awesome. He didn't listen to a word we said. And he went right into Jerusalem for Jesus. It's a, looking back, it's amazing. But I was on the front end of saying, no, Paul, this could end badly. Notice verse 13, then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? That's the response. Not thanks, guys. Appreciate the advice. You're breaking my heart. You're causing me physically, physical grief, the word. The words used here refer to. You're breaking my heart, for I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is so intent on taking this offering and then going to Rome that he says, this is the will of God, and I don't care if I die in Jerusalem for the sake of the gospel. And notice verse 14. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. So there is a warning, and it's true. You'll be imprisoned, and you'll be sent to Rome as a prisoner. That's going to happen to you. But Paul says, okay, I, if I die in Jerusalem, I get to see Jesus. You're trying to keep that from me? You, you're, Paul believes, he really does believe, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he says, if I die, that's better I get to be with Jesus, and you're breaking my heart, opposing, opposing that mission that may kill me, that may get me to Jesus sooner. 
And it's the same thing we saw in Matthew chapter 16 with Jesus. Notice again, Jesus sets His face to Jerusalem. He won't be stopped. Jesus warns His disciples, I'm going to suffer and die in Jerusalem. He won't be stopped. But remember what Peter said after Jesus said, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer and die. What did Peter do? Lord, God forbid, it ain't going to happen. I'm going with you. I got my sword. You will not suffer. You won't be arrested. This ain't going to happen. I'm going to keep it from happening. And how does Jesus respond to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. What is he saying to Peter? This is the will of God for me. This is the plan of God that I would suffer and that I would die in Jerusalem. Paul is saying, you're weeping and breaking my heart because it's the will of God for me to suffer and die in Jerusalem. And we learn here with Paul that our witness sometimes involves choosing suffering and difficulty to prove the gospel is better, to prove Jesus is better. There are decisions when you decide to live out the gospel in your life, you're going to make decisions that are going to require more stress for you. You're going to be a part of this ministry. It's going to take time, energy, and it's going to be stressful. And why should you do it? Because Jesus is better. It's the will of God. People in your life are going to say, why would you take that on? I remember we had four kids and we were telling our family, we're going to adopt two more. And I remember family members who loved us. They didn't not like us. They weren't trying to be mean to us. They would say, I don't think you should do that. And because I was a jerk that 10 years ago, I would say, I don't remember asking you. But they loved me. They cared about me. And when they looked in on my life, they saw... Stress, anxiety, this is going to cost a lot. This is going to be a lot difficult. You already have two boys, two girls. That's a perfect match. Why? That's, you know, why do you need? What are you going to do? Two, two more boys? That's going to, the number is going to be off balance at that point. What are you doing? And, and sometimes you embrace more stress. Sometimes you embrace more kids because it's the will of God. And the gospel is better. And that's the way you order your home. I remember when I was called to the ministry, I thought everybody in my family was going to be like, this is awesome. We have a preacher in the family. This is fantastic. And my mom thought it was awesome. My grandmothers thought it was awesome. And then I sat down with my granddad and I said, I want to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a pastor. And I thought this man would have spoken in tongues and sung a song. And that's not what happened. He said, what? This is a deacon in the church his whole life. And he had been around pastors who suffered greatly. And he looked at me and said, don't do that. He said, don't do it. <laughs> My dad said, you're crazy. How are you going to pay for school? You know pastors are poor. What are you doing? And, and, and all through your life, some of you are experiencing that right now. You're deciding to be foster parents. And grandma and granny are going, don't, don't do that. Don't do, you have enough. Don't take on that stress. Don't take on that financial burden. Some of you college students, your, your parents this summer said, you have the rest of your life to work. You have the rest of your life to do mission work. Go, you know, serve yourself this summer. Worry, care more about yourself. Don't, 
and you said, no, the gospel is greater. Some of you are doing that. We have so many people here who are doing that. And sometimes those closest to us are going, why? And you say, I'm bound to the will of God first and foremost. Notice verse 15, after these days we got ready and we went to Jerusalem. Now, verse 15 is crucial because Luke is saying, we ain't stopping. We, all, anytime we sat down for a meal, we had a cup of coffee, I was with Paul. Anytime I could get him alone, I would say, Paul, we're still going to Jerusalem? What do we do when we get up tomorrow? We're packing and we're going to Jerusalem. Why? You're going to be arrested, imprisoned. This isn't going to end well. And then Luke says, after these days, we got ready and went to Jerusalem. Where are we going today, Paul? To Jerusalem. We're not stopping. Tom Petty, I won't back down, playing in his earbuds as he's getting on the boat. I'm not stopping. And notice, and some of the disciples from, I don't know why I just said that. And some of the <laughs> disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manias of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we lodged. Again, as we move to Jerusalem, we're seeing the impact of Paul. More and more disciples, more and more loyal followers. Paul, I've heard of you. The reason I am a Christian is because of you. They lodged with them, and yet, verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem. And we get to that point, we think there's some watchmen, some gunmen. Here he comes, guys. We got him. No, notice what happens. The brothers received us gladly. Now, there's another picture of Jesus here. When Jesus marched into the city of Jerusalem, what happened? He wasn't immediately arrested. He wasn't immediately thrown on a cross. What did He do? He came in on a donkey and people were praising Him. Hosanna! Our King has come to the city. And there's another picture here of Paul looking a lot like Jesus as he enters Jerusalem. The brothers are cheering for him. We've heard about your ministry. He enters the city the same way Jesus entered the city. Verse 18, And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James. James at this point is the leader of the church in Jerusalem and all of the elders were present. There were probably 70 different leaders at this meeting from all of the churches throughout Jerusalem. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now think about these three missionary journeys, 75 different stops, churches planted all over the place, people believing the gospel, the signs, the wonders, the persecution. Man, in one city, I had rocks falling off of my head. They drugged me outside of the city, and I don't know what happened but when I came to, I wanted to go back to that city and preach the gospel. You, won't you can't imagine probably hours and hours and hours of describing his mission work among the Gentiles. But notice how short that description is of Paul recounting his ministry. It's one verse. You'd think this would be a four or five day conference. The ministry of the Apostle Paul. He's going to sell books. He's going to show us how to plant churches all around the world. No, he only gets a few hours to share 
what God is doing among the Gentiles because the church in Jerusalem, they need to say something to Paul. In verse 20, when they heard these things, they glorified God. But even in the same verse, there's not even a break. Yes, Paul, we've heard about your ministry. It's awesome, but let us tell you something. We've we got to deal with something here in Jerusalem. And they said to him, you see, brother, they use brother, sincere. They're buttering, up, buttering him up for something here. Hey, brother, how many thousands there are among the Gentiles of those who have or Jews of those who have believed? Yeah, yeah, the Gentile ministry, that's awesome. There's also a lot of Jews who are believing the gospel. And notice, they are zealous for the law. At this point, there was estimates of over 25,000 Jews in this area who had believed the gospel, and they were Messianic Jews. They weren't opponents to the gospel, but they were zealous to the law. They lived out the traditions of the law in light of Jesus. And yet when they hear of the Apostle Paul's ministry, notice verse 21, they had been told about you that you teach all Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. The Jews here in Jerusalem, they love the law. And many of them have believed the gospel and they see Jesus in light of their practice of the law. They're not trusting in the law. They're trusting in Jesus. But you're, it's rumored, Paul, that you're telling Jews everywhere not to circumcise their children anymore, not, not to carry out the customs of the law. And then verse 22, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Paul, we're about to have a riot in Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All your Gentile ministry, that's awesome. You'll write books about it one day. People, even in the 21st, 22nd century, they'll still have your books about the church. It's going to be awesome, Paul. Yeah, the Gentile ministry. But let's think about Jews here in Jerusalem. What is to be done for them? Because there is a rumor that you are anti-Moses. Verse 23, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Now, this would have been a Nazarite vow. Many men would have grown their hair out. Then they would have cut it and they would have offered it to the Lord as a sacrifice, as an offering, declaring they were set apart to the Lord. There was a purification uh, procedures that went apart with, went a part of this. There was an offering that went along with it. And, and, and they, Paul comes into James and he says, we've got four men who are going through this right now, this vow right now. It would be really good for you if you went down to the temple with these four men who are going through this Nazarite vow and you just paid for it. You even went through the purification ceremony with them. Take a selfie so everybody in Jerusalem knows you were there. It would be really good. We don't want Jerusalem Jews to think you're anti-law. So if they could see you head shaven, it's a PR campaign here. We don't want to riot in Jerusalem because of you. But verse 25, as for the Gentiles who believed, yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember Acts 15? We sent a letter. They know they don't have to be circumcised to be saved. They just need to turn from idolatry. They need to turn from sexual immorality. Yeah, yeah, Paul. You can only be saved through believing in Jesus. We've been clear about that. Gentiles don't have to be circumcised to be saved. But we need you to communicate that Jews don't have to forsake the law after they're saved. Now, Paul, several chapters ago, would have said, I could care less what anybody thinks about me in Jerusalem. 
If it's going to cause a riot, I'm going to preach the gospel. I, I, don't, I don't care. But what does he do here? Verse 26. Then Paul took the men the next day and he purified himself along with them and he went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. What does Paul do? He goes through the purification process with them. He even pays for their vows. And here we see a man sacrificing his right to be right. He doesn't have to do this. As a matter of fact, Paul has vehemently preached against tradition and circumcision as a way to be saved. And in his mind, he's probably thinking, some people are going to see this and they're going to misconstrue my message. And yet to avoid conflict in Jerusalem, to help the church in Jerusalem, there's no argument for him. Luke doesn't even bring up the fact he's got an offering. I mean, Paul could have said, what do you mean I'm against Jews in Jerusalem? I've been collecting an offering from all of these Gentile churches. Here it is. You know, take a picture for the paper with me, the offering, giving it to you on Sunday morning at church. They'll know I'm not anti-Jews. No, he says, okay, if that's what you want, I'll do it. And here Paul stands in the temple, and notice Luke is emphasizing here, he stands silent, silent. Maybe Paul did argue, but Luke doesn't bring it up. Why? He's emphasizing the power of the Spirit and one to close his mouth before his enemies. To close his mouth. And who does that remind you of? Jesus who walks into Jerusalem as a sheep before his shearers. And he does not open his mouth. And he sacrifices his rights for the good of others. Luke is pointing to one who's walking into Jerusalem, literally giving himself up. In the next section, we read that's how Paul is arrested in the temple. He's arrested around things that he used to prop up for his own image. Things he used to do to say, look at me, that he now says is rubbish. And Paul could have stood up in the temple and said, it's all rubbish. It's all about Jesus. And yet he sacrifices his rights for the church in Jerusalem because he's not worried about his image. We see that with the gospel. That's one of the things the gospel does for us is when we are free, really free in Christ, we're not bound to our image before others. We're not bound to it. We're not slaves to it. We're not bound to our rights. You know the reason you lash out at others when they disagree with you? You are bound to your image. You are bound to your rights. You are a slave to those things. Listen to me. You are addicted to that adrenaline rush of just having a better name, a better argument, a better opinion than other people. And you lash out because you are bound to an image. Paul walks into Jerusalem like Jesus. I'm not bound to anything else but the will of God. So I don't care. I will sacrifice my rights for these men because I am bound to the will of the Lord. And it just so happens in the next section, we see a man who is literally bound. This leads to his imprisonment. The, from this point on in the book of Acts, 
Paul will be in chains. And we see this man who accomplished his, his, his mission as a slave, as a prisoner. He goes from the cargo ship to the prisoner ship. And that's the way he fulfills his mission for the Lord. He will write to churches and he will say, I am a slave to Christ. We see one who is not bound to his image, but he is bound to the will of the Lord. Jesus turns to us today and he says, very clearly, what, what, what are you trying to protect? As we fight for our opinion to be heard, as we fight for our image before others, as we fight to be accepted, we fight to be cool, we fight to be known, we fight to have power. Jesus turns and says, what are you protecting? Like Paul would write to the Galatians, I have already been crucified in Christ. You need to believe your image has already had a crown of thorns pressed into its skull. You need to believe your rights have already been suffocated in gurgling blood on a cross. You need to realize your opinion has already been squelched out as Jesus said, it is finished. What do you have to protect? Why are you grasping for power? Why are you grasping for those things? You know why? Because you're a slave to them. You're a slave to them. You're not free. You are bound to those things. And the way you experience freedom is to say, no, I'm already been, I've already been crucified in Jesus and raised up three days later. I'm not a slave to anything like that. And you know what that leads to? Suffering for others. Some of us don't want to sacrifice for others because we're scared of the way it makes us look. People who have hurt us, people whose opinions are different from us, we don't want to serve them because we are bound to this image in ourselves. If I serve this person who's different from me, who may have different political beliefs than me, who may have a different lifestyle than me, what are people going to think about me? And Jesus says, I'll tell you what I think about you. I died for your sins. I was cursed on a cross for you. What did people think about me? Now, when you are released from that image, you are free to suffer and sacrifice for others. Paul says, I have already been crucified. My image has already been crucified. I don't care what other people think. I'm willing to sacrifice my rights. You've already been outed as a weak, pathetic sinner killed and crucified on a cross. What do you have to lose? You're free to su suffer. You're free to sacrifice for others. Here Paul makes his way to Jerusalem and then he says, come to Jerusalem but also come to Golgotha with me. But here's the catch. Our biggest problem is we don't go to Golgotha on private jets. We go to Golgotha on donkeys and on prisoner ships. And the question for us today, are we willing to embrace those chains for Jesus? Are we willing to be bound to Jesus or our image. Let's pray.